Sustainability Unwrapped, a conversational podcast about responsibility, ethics, inequalities, climate change, and other challenges of our times, where science needs practice to think about our world and how to make our society more sustainable one podcast at a time. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to this podcast from the Hanken series, Sustainability Unwrapped. My name is Martin Fougère, and I'm an associate professor in management and politics at Hanken. And I will host this podcast entitled, What can we do to make social innovation truly transformative? Social innovation is often presented as one of the key ways in which our societies can address various sustainability challenges. Thus, when thinking about sustainability transitions, or indeed uh, transformations for sustainability, the concept, the process, and the delivery of social innovation all hold considerable promise in contributing to desirable change. Yet, uh, there are very different understandings of what social innovation is and also what it should be. With the two, two guests uh, who are uh, invited with me here today, uh, we all believe that social innovation should be fundamentally transformative of society. And that is why the core question we want to address is what can we do uh, to make social innovation truly transformative? So in order to get clarity on what we can do to make social innovation transformative, I am delighted to welcome today here with me two scholars whose work is centered on social innovation. Frank Mullert is Professor Emeritus of Spatial Planning at the Department of Architecture, Urban Design and Regional Planning at Catholic University of Leuven. Uh, welcome, Frank. Happy to be here, Martin and Angeliki. Yes, and Angeliki Paidakaki, who is an urban and housing researcher with a background in economics, development studies, and spatial planning, and who is based also at uh, Catholic University of Leuven in the research unit planning and development from the Department of Architecture. Welcome, Angeliki. Thank you, Martin. Thank you for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. I'm also very happy to have you both here. And, and one reason why I'm particularly excited to have this podcast for, with you two is that I find your work particularly uh, inspirational. Uh, Frank, you are one of the most influential contemporary scholars of social innovation, and your contributions are invaluable in understanding what social innovation is, and importantly, of course, how it can be transformative of society. And I think here, perhaps the first key distinction uh, needs to be made at the outset. Uh, to simplify the debate on social innovation, Frank, you have established a, a clear distinction, for example, in your recent co-authored book, uh, Advanced Introduction to Social Innovation, between two main approaches to social innovation. So on the one hand, uh, there is the Anglo-American approach, where social innovations are typically targeted at particular social problems uh, with an emphasis on very pragmatic solutions deemed more effective than alternatives. On the other hand, there is a more radical approach, which you call the Euro-Canadian approach, and is more explicitly interested in, in political transformation, to refer to the title of a recent book co-edited by Angeliki. Uh, both of you 
position your work quite clearly in this more radical approach that aims for political transformation. And here I must say also that I find Angeliki's empirical studies, uh, several of which co-authored with, with Frank, who has been our supervisor, uh, I find these studies to be particularly useful in illuminating the counter-hegemonic possibilities of social innovation. For example, in the context of New Orleans post-Katrina that Angeliki has worked on uh, uh, in her uh, thesis, or in relation to pro-refugee housing alternatives that uh, she works on uh, now. Uh, in sum, you both advance a transformative role for social innovation, one that aims for radical social change. And importantly, I think that in your work, you both drive this notion that through their theories, uh, researchers can play and do play a central role in making social innovation truly transformative. So the we in the title of this podcast, you know, what can we do to make social innovation transformative, primarily refers to uh, researchers, to, to us, uh, us three, for example, and, and other researchers. But of course, our actions in many other roles, such as activists, civil servants, uh, consumers, donors, innovators, investors, and managers, for example, may also contribute to making social innovation transformative. So while the discussion is mainly framed in terms of the role of, the, of researchers, uh, please feel free to also refer to other roles where relevant. So with this, um, and sorry for this uh, slight, quite lengthy introduction, but I would like to ask you the first question, which is how can the theoretical work on social innovation uh, help in making social innovations contribute to political transformation? And let us start with Frank and continue with Angeliki. Yeah, it's like a title for a whole lecture or for a series of lectures, but uh, I, I will try to be concise. First of all, I, I don't like to, to separate theory from the other components of uh, scientific practice, like empirical research, action research, and so on, which in social innovation research, uh, the three obviously go together. Still, yeah, we can recognize a specific role for theory or specific roles for theory. Uh, one being that a, a theory can be considered as a summary of observations, empirical conclusions we, we have uh, uh, made and drawn in the past. It's like, uh, yeah, a synthesis of insights that we acquired before. Uh, theory can also be uh, uh, perspective, looking forward, trying to extrapolate or making hypotheses about what we learned from the past and what it means to, towards the future or towards other places. That's why in, in uh, uh, social innovation theorizing, we rely very much on uh, on holism, for, for example, and on pragmatism, because there the comparative uh, element plays an important role, feedback and uh, feed-forward relations play an important role, and, and so on. Um, so having explained this, yes, I believe that theory can play an important role in, in building uh, views of alternatives or in uh, playing a role for uh, alternative uh, governance systems, for, for example. So let's go back to, to political transformation and, and why it is needed. Um, 
to make things a bit too simple, oversimplified, we could say that the political system today, uh, the political allocation system, how are political decisions made uh, uh, to the favor, to the benefit of, of the citizens, uh, um, that political system can be considered as a kind of uh, dual combination of, on, on the one hand, market for votes, I mean, people go to vote every once in a while, the regularity, the, the calendar uh, differs very strongly among nations and, and, and regions. And on the other hand, an allocation system that is based uh, on economic and, and social efficiency criteria. Now, these social efficiency criteria are increasingly uh, dictated by microeconomic criteria, like cost efficiency, productivity, um, feasibility uh, uh, with respect to individual needs and, and so on. So we should say that basically society and its political system today is very firmly embedded in, in the market economy. I mean, Polanyi was uh, developing his theory ex explaining how uh, uh, the economy was uh, embedded in society for a very long time. Then he explained how this disembedment took place. Now, I would go a step further and say that uh, uh, society and its political system is very much embedded in, in the market economy because in its functioning, it applies principles of uh, the market. It applies principles of efficiency, behavior, and, and so on, and, and so on. That means, with respect to the relationship between citizens, between people, between human beings, uh, let's say, that uh, uh, individualism has been strengthened, has been put forward as, as a very uh, uh, pr prominent value uh, uh, in, in human behavior, uh, economic behavior, political behavior, social behavior, and so on. That also means that uh, the image of a society which should be deregulated to the extent that the market can free uh, can move freely, that this is also pushed forward in, in, as a principle in a very active way. It also means that uh, uh, economic efficiency is increasingly pushing aside uh, or superseding so social efficiency. Social efficiency meaning that uh, uh, the resources of a society, of a community, should be mobilized and transformed in a way as to satisfy the needs of the large majority of the population, and ideally the whole population in, in a way. Um, what are the consequences of this kind of embedment of, of society in, in a market economy? Well, um, society has, to a large extent, become a market. Um, society is, to a large extent, run according to market allocation principles. Find a job, find a house, uh, find an income, uh, friends coming exactly or mainly from, from uh, professional environments and, and so on. And I, I can keep going on, on this. There is and that's part of it, uh, part of this embedment of society in, in the market economy. There is a mismatch between needs, people's needs, individual and collective needs. We won't go into details. I mean, housing is an excellent example, of course, uh, and the supply. 
the, this mismatch uh, uh, is translated in common terms as poverty, uh, homelessness, and 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 so on. Um, in macroeconomic terms, it means that uh, there is an income distribution that has become so skewed that it is no longer possible for, let's say, depends on the country, of course, for one third of the population to easily acquire an own house or, or an own premises to, to live. Another consequence of this adverse embedment is uh, that communication is in society is mainly based on market signals. Uh, the price system, I already pointed at, uh, efficiency norms. Uh, would, you, would you really do this? Uh, is it really efficient what you're doing? Is it worth doing it? I mean, this is uh, a very covered up economic logic behind uh, elementary uh, human reasoning in a way. And then maybe most important is the individual reaction pattern. Uh, what we used to call in, in microeconomics the pursuit of the consumer surplus in whatever we do. So this, this, uh, these microeconomic principles are, um, um, are penetrating, are diffusing throughout the whole social fabric, throughout the whole f so social uh, uh, tissue, in, in a way. Um, so what that means for a production system uh, in a society which is embedded in in a in an in an economy is that uh, the production is pr predominantly done for the market is predominantly done for fictive needs for fictive commodities and not to satisfy real needs what are solutions for this so i'm gradually coming to social innovation. Don't worry. What are the solutions for this? Uh, at the macroeconomic level, and we don't go into detail here, uh, I already evoked it, we have to go back to real Keynesian uh, redistribution policy at the level of income and at the level of, of, of wealth. Um, if you mention this in a public forum today, people start laughing at you and they say, this is impossible. And at this point, I'm, I'm rather uh, I'm rather pessimistic about the possibilities. And another very important uh, uh, activity, if I can call it an activity, that should take place at, at the macro level is social green deals. I say social green deals, not green deals. I do not believe that we can reach sustainability on the basis of new technologies. Uh, I hate silent traffic jams. I mean, I have this horrible image of traffic jams with all electrically driven cars. I mean, they are still traffic jams. They still put an enormous burden on, on resource provision and on nature and so on. They still put an enormous burden on, on the nerves and the social capacities of all those drivers who probably in those traffic jams will remain as aggressive as they would have been in noisy traffic jams. Anyway, at the micro level and also the most mes meso level, but uh, this is not a lecture, this is an answer to a question in, in a way, um, we talk about and we deal with social innovation. 
in most of our work for the last 30 years, we have said that true social innovation is based on three dimensions. And these three dimensions should be connected to each other to make social innovation work in its ambitions. It's about need satisfaction of individual and collective needs for those who need them, who, who see their needs not satisfied. It's about building uh, social uh, relations, rebuilding social relations, superseding individualism and, and so on. And it's about uh, uh, social political transformation, uh, mainly through capacitation, making people citizens, political beings again. As to needs, um, we need needs revealing systems that go beyond the, the uh, uh, lack of transparency of the market. I mean, this is another discussion. Some analysts would say the market makes uh, allocation transparent, but it's exactly the other way around. But let's leave this out for, for now. So we need needs revealing systems uh, that uh, offer alternatives to the markets. Fora, public forums. I mean, we can learn from the Greeks there. Um, what happened in the Agoras, uh, 2,000, 3,000 years ago were to a large extent political discussions. They may have been elitist, but it's still a model from which we can learn. A more contemporary example is uh, which, is, which is very popular or was very popular in France still recently, maybe it still exists, uh, Les Etats Généraux, where the people uh, are brought together to discuss particular issues uh, in domain of agriculture, uh, public transport, uh, you name it. Uh, um, another, uh, yes, I made some notes here. Um, another alternative needs revealing system is occupation, occupation of wasteland, occupation of of public space that has been uh, used for private or semi-private purposes uh, uh, illegally in a way. Let's turn things around. I mean, many private actors would, would use public space for private purposes, which I consider illegal, obviously. Another example, a third example, and a last one for our purpose today of a revealing system that is an alternative to the market is setting up pilot projects of alternative strategies, alternative options. A very convincing example today is the short chain uh, supply systems in, in agriculture. Bring the farmer to your, to your home, bring the farmer to your marketplace and so on. So a nice news about the COVID crisis is that short chain supply uh, uh, systems in, in agriculture uh, have been very successful, certainly in my hometown uh, and, and also in, in, in many other places. So this is about satisfaction of needs and how we can reveal needs in, in, a, in a political way that is an alternative to the market. As to social relations building, which we believe is the core of, of social innovation theory uh, and, and action research, it's about how to learn or to learn again to cooperate in, in an ethical way. Uh, thousands of experiments across the world are trying this today. You have atlases of social innovation experiments, social economy experiments all over the world. You can ch check this through Google. It's a very interesting uh, exercise to make. 
So if we say that we have to learn again to cooperate in an ethical way, what, what does that mean? We have to respect people. We have to respect other people in, in, in a much more uh, ethical way. Not pretending that you're listening to a person, but really trying very hard to understand what, what the person say. Um, rediscovering uh, practices of, of mutual aid. This is practiced all the time in many of the pilot cases. I won't refer now to concrete examples uh, uh, because that would lead us too far and maybe it can come better. It can, it can come back or Angeliki can give some examples uh, when she talks about her social resilience cells. I don't know. I don't want to manipulate you, uh, Angeliki, but uh, it would be an opportunity. Recipro reciprocity, uh, sharing, and, and so on. Uh, many of these categories of social human behavior have been analyzed uh, in very great, great detail and in, very, in a very empirical way by uh, um, anarchist writers like Kropotkin and, and Bookchin. I mean, uh, for me, Kropotkin for the future of human society is even more important than Darwin. And that's a, a very interesting uh, provocation, I would say. And then the last dimension of social innovation, uh, which directly relates to social political transformation, although you understand that the two others are also very important, no decent politics without respect, no decent pro politics without mutual aid between parties, between fractions, and, and, and so on. So the last dimension, uh, social political transformation, um, we have gone very far in, in studying experiments of uh, bottom-linked initiatives, which is a model in which grassroots initiatives learn from especially lower-level local state departments and vice versa. They learn how to, to cooperate, to respect each other, to develop agendas together, to, uh, to develop learning tracks trajectories together. We have done a lot of work recently on, on the commons, landed commons in, in Leuven from a social innovation perspective, in which we have dynamized and made much more operational la, la théorie des cités. Um, and we understand that many of the initiatives will work or will fail if, depending on the collective learning process is done in an atmosphere of full respect, in an atmosphere of abandoning power positions, in an atmosphere of willing to exchange resources, uh, and that this is really the way of learning deep democratic governance. Deep democratic governance is a term that is used in more radical planning approaches, uh, for example. Uh, so yes, social innovation in its three dimensions can really help us to, to build bridges to socio-political transformation. We are far from where we would like to get, but uh, we're learning. And after all, if you look at the long-term history, um, from the, the first revolts of, of the unions, the cooperatives, uh, the workers' organizations, to the establishment of an acceptable welfare state uh, more than 100 years past. So it's, it's a very short period in, in, in the long durée historical perspective. 
Yes, well, thank you, Frank, for, for this introduction to social innovation theory, as it were, and, and, and actually the three dimensions that need to be combined in social innovation, which you introduced very, uh, very clearly here. So, so that's, I think, a great start uh, to understand what we are talking about here. Uh, and I would like to ask then Angeliki about, well, theory and as as frank was saying also uh you cannot fully separate theory from practice so maybe we can combine this question of you know uh, the question of social innovation theory and its connection to to empirics and uh more specifically i would like also angeliki to address how she has selected uh, her empirical cases and how the interplay uh, between the empirical cases and various ideas or theories uh, works. Uh, so, Angeliki. Uh, thank you, Martin. Um, I would like to share my take on your first question. Uh, how can the theoretical work on social innovation help in making socially, social innovations contribute to political transformation? Uh, basically, add uh, uh, some um, extra remarks on top of what Frank already explained. So, I think first we need to define what we mean exactly by political transformations. Uh, in my opinion, uh, political transformation translates into the institutional leverage of social initiatives, so the formation of open and democratic governance arrangements, and the development of a new welfare state that incentivizes and finances with deep subsidies a diverse terrain of uh, social initiatives, social innovative initiatives. Now, in light of my interpretation of political transformation, which actually corresponds more to the third dimension of social innovation as was defined and explained by Frank Moulard and his colleagues, uh, then the theoretical work that could be useful for social innovations to trigger political transformation should unpack further this third dimension. Namely, uh, in my opinion, uh, researchers should study in more details and across different contexts the microphysics of governance formation uh, processes co-led by uh, social innovations and reflect on them and come up with useful concepts that reflect better those complex mechanisms. So already uh, prominent scholars um, belonging in the radical or democratic tradition of the social innovation debate have placed the focus on this dimension, on empowerment and the sociopolitical transformative potential of uh, social innovations like uh, Frank Moulart, Diana McCallum, Stein Osterling, and many others. I have given numerous examples of those uh, governance, bottom-linked governance interactions in different spaces like Mark Pratel, Santiago Ezaguire, Marisol Garcia. Now, those scholars have understood that social uh, innovative actions cannot take place in a vacuum but they need to be embedded in these bottom-linked uh, governance structures in order to have a lasting impact, impact on the functioning of democracy. Now, this embeddedness mainly translates into the recognition and constant promotion of the centrality of those initiatives by powerful institutions like state uh, authorities, um, elected officials, uh, through sound and productive regulatory and legislative frameworks and new governance arrangements that can only be materialized through these constant and various uh, interactions and modes of collaborations between social innovations and those uh, institutional structures. Now, um, to deepen our uh, and widen our knowledge 
uh, within which social innovations perform new political positions and opt for governance reconfigurations through collective advocacy strategies, uh, those institutional interactions uh, between social innovations and social innovation initiatives uh, with uh, institutions, scholars of social innovation should study uh, this dimension deeper um, across contexts and further enrich it and further inform it. Uh, now, there is um, an increasingly prominent concept um, within the scholarship that uh, was developed when studying social innovations through these lenses, and this is um, the concept of bottom-linked governance. Now, bottom-linked governance refers to these new and more productive modes of cooperation between civil society organizations and institutions um, as I mentioned before, across territorial scales and really has drawn the attention recently of uh, social innovation scholars because of its precise, positive, analytical, action-oriented, sociopolitical transformation potential. Now, other concepts that could further unpack this third dimension of social innovation are those of social resilient cells, the egalitarian city, the neo-welfare state, institutional capital, and so on. And uh, I would like to explain what I mean with those concepts. Um, social resilient cells are defined, uh, at least when studied within the housing systems, as affordable housing providers or housing policy implementers who mobilize different discursive and material practices in their aim to influence both sociopolitically and by their housing initiatives, the recovery profile of a post-disaster city. Now, this concept elevates resilience from a single capacity of a system to resist shock and bounce back or bounce forward in a linear monodirectional way to a highly politically sensitive, socially transformative process with various bounce forward imaginations and trajectories steered and materialized by a heterogeneity of social resilient cells. Um, therefore, the concept enriches and clarifies the concept of resilience by revealing and making verifiable the hidden features of it, which is the sociopolitical ones. So my PhD research, uh, by use of the socially embedded SRCs, it further repoliticized the resilience discourse by busting uh, discursive myths about ideal recovery processes, which are disconnected from the needs and the practices on the ground, uh, revealing the multidirectionality of recovery trajectories, and very importantly, raising key issues about the normative role of the state within this heterogeneous uh, landscape of social resilience cells in housing systems. So very importantly, the concept shifted the debate away from a social justice approach to the allocation of housing by building a narrative of resilience equity that translates into a just redistribution of resources and uh, cultivation of empowerment across various social resilience cells who struggle for the right to experiment with recovery redevelopment strategies. Now, two other concepts that emerge throughout my PhD research are those of the egalitarian city and the neo-welfare state. So when we talk about uh, political transformation, what do we expect? So 
in which direction. So one could be that we want more egalitarian cities. Uh, so what do I, how do the, how I define an egalitarian city is the city where all neighborhoods are recognized for their unique housing and social needs, as well as for their particular socio-demographic and physical characteristics, and where social resilient cells, public authorities, politicians are responsive to the specific needs of those communities. Also, uh, through this egalitarian city lens, the neo-welfare state then is the one that incentivizes and finances with deep subsidies at this diverse terrain of social resilience cells in a more socially just way, while at the same time securing equal access to basic goods and services for all. Now, creating an egalitarian city calls for massive uh, social investments and fundamental legislative and uh, policy reforms, which liberate all social resilience cells through equal treatment and sufficient capitalization uh, or incentivization. Now, uh, finally, the concept of endogenous and exogenous institutional capital cast light on these governance building fermentations within social uh, innovative initiatives, as well as between those and institutions. Now, for example, um, an endogenous uh, institutional capital uh, of pro-growth social resilience cells is the pragmatic market-mediated strategic partnerships or informal interactions for information exchange, whereas exogenous institutional capital of pro-growth SRCs is the maintenance or growth of pro-market, proto-regulation public institutions or profit-oriented public-private partnerships. Whereas uh, an endogenous uh, social capital of uh, alternative counter-hegemonic counter SRCs um, are considered those of solidarity-based alliances or movement formulation, formal joint ventures for development, and, and so on. Whereas exogenous institutional capital of uh, alternative SRCs um, are considered more um, open, transparent, inclusive public participation forums, human-centered public-private partnerships, and so on. Now, um, after this long explanation um, on what kind of theoretical work we need to steer uh, and inspire political transformation led by social innovative initiatives, I believe that these new concepts that we develop as scholars can be inspirational for those initiatives uh, who are open to self-reflect, to find, um, to use those concepts for the development of new discourses, for new claims, um, for um, advocacy purposes, uh, network expansion, uh, interaction with state agencies, etc. And those concepts can be relevant not only for the social uh, initiatives that we study for our research, but for similar other ones across the world whose circumvalities uh, with the initiatives under study and who can reapproach as well their ambitions, strategies, and practices adjusted uh, to the context in which they are embedded. And also those concepts are very useful as well as an instrument for awareness raising. They can be used to raise public awareness on the merits of open and inclusive urban governance, inspire future urban shapers, um, equip local, regional, national, international policy officers and policy makers um, with a new knowledge on the nature and the role of social uh, innovative initiatives and uh, new welfare state forms. Now, with respect to uh, your second question, 
what yes, kind of uh, perhaps uh, yeah so I, I can perhaps uh, uh, comment a little bit here like uh, I think you one thing that that really comes through in both of your uh, discussions is the question of scale and the question of you know the macro level meso and and micro levels and um, uh, so there's this concept of bottom link governance which connects at least micro and meso and then the question of neo welfare state which is more a macro question um, uh, which is also uh, part of the political transformation that you see related to social innovation where, when frank was more saying that the, on the state level i mean that social innovation is mainly on the meso and micro levels uh, uh, so the these are these are very uh, interesting comments i mean it's it's also about how difficult it is to study social innovation because it, it's it's a multi-scalar phenomenon and it is also something that can be translated from one context to another but but uh, there are of course difficulties in doing that uh, as angeliki was, was suggested everything is embedded in a, in, in a context and when you try to use certain concepts uh, like neo welfare state for example you know in a very different context it might be uh, well you need to translate the, the concept and so on so so these are some of the difficulties uh, with social innovation research um i think we yeah we, uh, it makes sense for us now to continue with the question of uh, what, what kinds of empirical cases can we have i think we'll have to be a bit briefer in in the answers in in general uh if we want to address uh, some of the other questions later on but of course this uh question of empirical cases and how to study them is is really crucial so let's move on to that question and angeliki please uh Okay, um, yes, now with respect to the question of uh, what kinds of social innovations uh, we should um, study empirically if we want to advocate for more transformative social innovations, I would say uh, that we need to find cases where all the three criteria of social innovation are met. Uh, especially uh, focusing um, or underscoring the third dimension, that's the political essence of social innovations and their interactions uh, and in empowerment, thinking empowerment uh, in terms of um, access to necessary resources, financial, institutional, etc. Um, now, with respect to the second question that you had, uh, how I selected my empirical cases, um, this always depends on the specific aims and expected outcomes of each research project. Uh, for example, for my PhD research, my aim was to reconstruct the notion of resilience by studying and uncovering the heterogeneity of housing actors. So I used the 10-year recovery of Post-Katrina New Orleans as an analytically significant chronological platform against which I could examine, examine how resilience as a capacity and as a process was um, imagined and reimagined, applied and reapplied by a heterogeneity of housing actors in the early and late recovery years. Uh, constantly changing uh, the recovery trajectories and the redevelopment priorities. So, uh, since I developed the concept of social resilience cells before fieldwork, I had in mind to map out and study a sample of pro-growth, pro-equity, pro-materializing social resilience cells. Uh, in the first part of my fieldwork, uh, the unit of my analysis were the discursive and material practices uh, of uh, social resilience cells. So, I interviewed uh, 
the sample of uh, social resilience cells, trying to uncover uh, the recovery the recovery discourse of my interviewees and capture the various interpretations of the mechanisms and practices affecting uh, the rebuilding profile of the city. And in the second part of my fieldwork, I the unit of my analysis were the social capital of, of all those social resilience cells, their assets, their rebuilding footprint. Uh, so I studied, um, I wanted to gain a deeper insight into the nature and the variability of all the, those uh, three uh, social resilience cells. Now, for my postdoctoral research, the aim is to examine the integrative role and sociopolitically transformative potential of those alternative social resilience cells in Europe in the post-2015 double refugee affordable housing crisis and the selection of my case studies, which were Vienna, Madrid, Athens, Berlin, Stockholm, was premised on three criteria. First, a high percentage of refugee population looking for accommodation. Second, the emergence of socially innovative responses to housing needs for refugees uh, with a sociopolitical transformative potential. And third, a, house, a high housing cost overburden rate. So I chose to uh, interview those organizations who were active in the field of housing uh, for uh, refugees and uh, other vulnerable populations and how individually and also in collaboration with other um, social initiatives um, advocated and lobbied for adequate housing for all. So I had in mind this third dimension of social innovation and focused on the political essence of those social innovations. Now, with respect to the third part of your question, um, now um, I will give you an example, in my PhD research, to analyze how housing actors and their networks deal with um, challenges such as housing exclusion, neighborhood underinvestment in times of post-disaster recovery, I developed the concept of social resilience cells before fieldwork. Uh, I did that by bringing different literatures in dialogue with each other, political ecology, housing studies, social innovation research, governance and participation. Uh, and then the concept was further elaborated, clarified and reinforced with empirical evidences from post-Katrina New Orleans. But the other way around happened as well. Um, so um, empirical findings uh, led me to the construction of the endogenous and exogenous institutional capital. First, uh, the endogenous institutional capital was produced after I studied um, a housing alliance in New Orleans, the Greater New Orleans Housing Alliance, which was an alliance of counter-hegemonic social resilience cells, which was established in 2007 um, and became much more invigorated in the later years of recovery, and it has become now a very influential uh, urban uh, stakeholder. And the Housing NOLA, which was another partnership between the Greater New Orleans Housing and Alliance and other various partners, such as city and state authorities, universities, banks, local residents, non-profits, who together um, uh, set up a housing plan for the city of New Orleans uh, in order to make sure uh, that there will be affordable, high quality housing for all in the next 10 years. So this partnership is a notable example of the um, building up of institutional capital um, in exogenous, let us say, governance arrangements. Thank you, Angeliki, also for, for expanding on this question of how yeah, the, what is how the connection between ideas and empirical study goes, and it goes both ways, as you as you made very clear here. Uh, Frank, would you like to, to comment fairly quickly uh, on this question of empirical, how to study empirically 
social innovations because that's something uh, you have thought about, of course, very, very much. So what uh, <laughs> what kind of empirical studies do we need? I mean, I think that's that's an important question. It is a very important question. Uh, of course, we also had to to learn our métier no? when we started doing uh, social innovation research at a very local level at the uh, end of the 1980s within the framework of, of the poverty tree program of the European Commission, as, as a matter of fact. Uh, the tools we had available came from different disciplines, but uh, we were looking really for a, a much more integrated approach. Um, and I think uh, the first thing with it, if I recollect well, is look at some local development models in, in different disciplines and pick some of the most relevant elements uh, to use as uh, yeah, combined perspective to look at local development initiatives. Um, uh, some of our very uh, important and interesting case studies uh, at the very beginning were like Buurtontwikkelingsmaatschappij uh, in Antwerp, uh, the Neighborhood Development Association in, in Antwerp, which as a matter of fact, we followed for almost 25 years till its dissolution. Uh, very soon, in very early in the process of analysis, we, we discovered the, the relevance of looking at these three dimensions of social innovation, which I mentioned before, uh, in, interactively. I mean, satisfaction of human needs, uh, building, rebuilding of, of social relations, and uh, social-political empower dynamics, uh, social-political trans transformation. And the link, especially the link between the second and the third dimension is, is extremely important. If you look at the failures of many of the uh, alternative political systems uh, in the world over the last hundred years, it's because uh, uh, I think the, the theory and practice about the political system was just uh, uh, controlish, was about how we can we control the resources in order to allocate them uh, according to criteria that are more egalitarian, for example, but then still doing it according to very, very uh, authoritarian, uh, cruel, uh, exclusive methods in, in a way. Um, if you would have a political system in which social relations, reciprocity, respect, communication and so on would be put much more forward than in, in the actual existent political systems and the political practices we, we went through, I think we, we would come much closer to what uh, uh, real democracy, deep, deep democracy really needs. So I believe there cannot be a socio-political transformation without a transformation in, in social relations, in the ethics of uh, social relations. Uh, it's a message we got from the anarchist literature, but also from uh, a lot of social uh, movements literature and, and so on. But it's, it's a mes message that social innovation experiences uh, put into practice. Uh, uh, I could give many examples, but uh, I will abstain from now. At least uh, this podcast should also be an advertisement for our literature, for our writings, of course. <laughs> Yes. Um, yes, and I mean, the, so this podcast is 
particularly focused, of course, on the role of, of us <laughs> and by us, as I said earlier, it's us as researchers, but of course it's us as many, many other things. Um, but so if we, and if we make perhaps concrete the, the role of researchers in trying to make this political transformation come about. Uh, so, so I think one uh, part of that has been quite clear already that through our empirical studies and through, you know, partially action research and, and also through creating concepts that we then use to describe, for example, counter-hegemonic social resilience cells versus other approaches to resilience, we can make interventions that, that might help uh, well, you know, inspire others to 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 go for these similar radical uh, radical ideas of, of social change. Uh, so that is one aspect of, of of the role of researchers. There is another aspect that I would like you, Frank, to uh, to comment on because I know that you have been involved in 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 policy or at least in networks uh, dealing with policy for for a long time. Uh, so the role of researchers in relation to policy, and here we go back to the macro level, so to speak. Uh, social innovation is also sub, uh, subject to policy. And uh, it's, uh, of course, in, when it's subject to policy, it's not typically framed in very radical terms, in, you know, in, in, in kind of going against uh, this, uh, this market economy, uh, the, you know, so. Um, so. I would like you to to perhaps comment on this and and the role of that researchers social innovation researchers can play in seeing to it perhaps that social innovation in policy uh, would reflect perhaps the 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 more radical perspective that that you have and so I would like to start with Frank and then go to to Angeliki with with these questions about about policy. Yeah, it's it's a very difficult question, and one of the books I'm I'm co-writing these days with uh, Bob Jessop and Eric Swingado uh, deals exactly with the relationship between, on the one hand, the different roles of social innovation, research, action, uh, uh, profiling, uh, designing, and so on, and the other, uh, on the on the other hand, social political transformation. Um, the role of researchers till now is, has been very diverse. Many of the researchers in the network play political roles, very uh, modest roles quite often, uh, but advising neighborhood associations, uh, social movements on, on how to build coalitions, on how to build networks in order to uh, uh, yeah, maybe end up conquering or co conquering City Hall, as we used to call it, uh, getting the mayor, as was uh, the case in Barcelona, uh, with Barcelona, Barcelona en commun, which is one our, of our very hopeful examples for Europe of how uh, bottom-up uh, organizations, social organizations, uh, uh, socially innovate, socially innovative networks can work towards uh, a new political majority which tries to implement an agenda that is very different from uh, uh, the city marketing uh, agenda that, for example, Barcelona used uh, to, to pursue and being much more uh, focused on, to the extent that is possible, of course, within the limits of uh, ur urban policy, being much more focused on providing social housing, on improving the quality of uh, uh, public spaces 
on providing uh, better schooling, uh, bet better childcare, and 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 so on. Of course, very soon you bump into the limits of what uh, local government can do. Um, so the lobbying uh, and the socially innovative mobilization to also transform the other scales of, of governance and of political life remains very important. But there we have a, a long way to go. But again, I refer to history. Uh, if you move on from uh, the local uh, unions, the local cooperatives, the local mutualities, if you look at how these uh, associated themselves in I don't know what the exact term was they used at the time, but networks of cooperatives and so on, uh, building regionally organized, nationally organized unions, working together with the progressive parties, the socialist parties, uh, uh, anarchist movement, the, the political uh, co communist party and, and, and so on, then, yeah, it takes decades to make this happen. What worries me, however, in the whole dynamics today is that individual ethics have uh, percolated into people's mind to such an extent that it, it has become very, very difficult to, to sell a collective project, uh, like transforming uh, the political system, like de-economizing the market for votes and turn it again into a, a social political participation system and so on. But uh, I will stick to that, but it's a very important issue. Can the individualists that we have become today still become political beings? It's a question that preoccupies me very much. Yes, thank you, uh, Frank. And, and so, Angeliki, uh, on this question of, um, well, the role of researchers in, in, in achieving this political transformation. So there are many layers to that. Again, uh, there could be, you know, policy layer. There could be, for example, this question of new welfare state. Can can researchers contribute to that and, and how? So these types of questions, what, what would be your thoughts on, on these? Yeah, in terms of what you mentioned about uh, how researchers problematize this pragmatic Anglo-American policy influential discourse, I would like to give a take on that first before uh, explaining how researchers could um, um, help in uh, building up uh, a new welfare state or co-shape a new welfare state. Uh, so I think we cannot understand uh, the relationship um, between this alleged role of social innovation policy and these radical social innovations if we don't examine the political uh, economy paradigm and the state form in which social welfare policy and social innovation policies are embedded in. So in my opinion, social innovation policy within a neo-welfare state um, can make a very good symbiosis with a radical bottom-up or bottom-link governance because the neo-welfare state um, supports with long-term long -term stable financing and coherent uh, support 
of uh, a wide range of social innovations. Whereas uh, when social innovation policy is embedded in a neoliberal or pro-market state form, that makes a more problematic symbiosis because we see social innovative initiatives, especially the solidarity inspired, the more radical, uh, are contained or they are unsustainable or let us say handicapped in a way in terms of access to resources vis-a-vis -vis other kinds of social innovations like uh, entrepreneurial ones or technological ones. And this is also echoed by various post-political foundational authors like uh, Ranciers, Wingendo, uh, where they claim that social innovation can only have limited potential for transformations uh, because they refer to this caring neoliberal views of social innovation. So they say and they argue that within a caring neoliberal paradigm, the welfare state is shrunken in budget and social responsibility for cost efficiency purposes. Uh, and then the main role of this small welfare state uh, becomes the activating and um, the monitoring of pre-selected uh, social innovations, uh, who in turn are expected to experiment with new ideas uh, for low-cost services. And they don't cultivate uh, politically stronger uh, social innovative actors. Now, this is very uh, obvious. We see it in the housing sector when uh, it becomes a, a welfare uh, policy failure when we see uh, that um, a, a large majority or no, a large portion of Europeans um, ha are struggling with housing affordability issues. And um, especially in the most um, the low income populations living in countries like Greece, Ireland, Portugal, Spain. Now, uh, the interesting uh, thing to notice here is that on the one hand, uh, social innovation policy um, celebrates social innovative actors in the housing sector, such as uh, social housing providers, uh, community land trusts, housing cooperatives, and other kinds of um, housing collaborative forms. Um, but on the other hand, those organizations struggle to gain uh, access to public funding. So um, that impacts their work and also impacts the final result of what? Of housing provision, adequate, housing provision. So it then uh, impacts um, societies most vulnerable, homeless, low income, no income people, migrants, young people, etc. So there is really uh, a policy vacuum here. Now this so cases the social innovation policy needs to be backed up by a neo welfare state uh, and not by a shallow pocketed um, small welfare state. But not only that, it also needs to pay more attention, uh, not only on the first dimension of social innovation, which is the satisfaction of human needs. So uh, the state should not only treat uh, those initiatives as policy implementers, but they should also focus, celebrate and finance all these different social relations that they build together with the alliances and um, their advocacy work, etc. So we need to see uh, that as well. Now, what is the role of researchers in, in those fermentations, in those processes? Uh, I believe that researchers should be more active in doing transdisciplinary research, meaning to create a social um, or learning community forums 
where different partners um, are part of um, not only social initiatives, but also politicians, public authorities, um, citizens, uh, to start changing a little bit this um, this culture of governance that we have to bring to link more the top with the bottom and more uh, the bottom to be linked to the top. Uh, so one on the one hand, we should try to uh, apply more this kind of transdisciplinary and action research methods, so we can also contribute in these uh, governance uh, formations, but also to try to communicate science. Um, way more by uh, giving interviews to um, uh, newspapers, uh, writing blog posts, doing podcasts, um, uh, maybe doing some small documentaries and try to promote them through YouTube, etc. I think this is really, really crucial. Thank you, Angeliki. So again, this question of bottom link governance is very crucial uh, in, in everything I think that, that has been said. And uh, the role of researchers, of course, can be to yeah to, to be part of those networks uh, forming this this bottom link governance uh, system so to speak. Uh, so, uh, how about in EU policy, Frank? Uh, what do you think their the role of researchers can be? I mean, researchers are involved, or you know, prominent researchers are involved in policy uh, very often. Is there an opportunity to complete this bottom linked? Uh, uh, circle so to speak or, or, or the, the whole the whole system by being involved at the very highest uh, levels of, of policy or do you think it given the the current structures it's it's uh, it's a fool's errand or, or what what would be your uh, your thoughts about this to to wrap our discussion up well the short answer uh, could be yes to the second question no uh, i mean it's the European Commission and its administration fun functions as a, uh, a bureaucracy, a market for lobbyists to change the terminology. Uh, and it's amazing to see how, uh, for example, our 20 years long research trajectory on, on social innovation and uh, local development that has had a tremendous academic impact and uh, to my own benefit as well has been completely overlooked by the european commission to, till one day um, one lobby one uh, ngo i won't mention the name you can re retrieve it in my publications went to speak to the commission uh, with this brilliant idea of to launch social innovation at, at the level of the European Commission. Um, they set up a panel of wizards, most of which came from the economic sector, mainstream policy, policy sector, uh, some NGOs, obviously, otherwise you're not representative. This is the cynical Frank speaking. And then they started writing a, a policy document on, on social innovation, which completely reflects this one pole in, in, in the literature. I mean, the, the practical pole. In a way, it's even more conservative uh, than what we uh, uh, distinguished and, 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 and uh, um, pointed out as, as the Anglo-Saxon approach to social innovation, which is, is very pragmatic. Uh, this is 
this original vision of social innovation in the European policy documents was not just pragmatic, it was market geared. It was like uh, very much uh, uh, about creating uh, second rate, second quality jobs in order in order to provide uh, uh, jobs for the poor, for the unemployed, for the un unqualified and, and so on. And our scientific officers uh, who uh, supervised our projects and very often had to defend them at the level of the commission, commission they they protested really against this this way of uh, proceeding uh, in against this way of uh, writing a policy document that would cover the different possible impacts uh, and contributions of social innovation in european policy so i had the honor to write eight pages of comments on the original documents which were then retrieved in one footnote in the final version of, of the document. So that more or less... Uh, <laughs> that summarizes it, yes. Summarizes my feelings. And so I'm a bit more positive now because uh, the soup is never eaten as hot as it is served, they say. So we are Europeans. We are Belgians, so we always find loopholes and uh, backdoors in order to, <laughs> to, to locate our projects and programs within what look like uh, very mainstream and economically acceptable uh, social innovation programs. And there has been a wide diversification of social innovation programs uh, across the uh, um, the different European support programs. So, if you would do, uh, if you would make a prospectus now of the different uh, uh, European programs and projects in which in which social innovation pops up, you may find that uh, you can still serve yourself à la carte and find your thing to do your more uh, radical, uh, um, conscious raising, empowering type of of social innovation. Um, Dr. Coles, who worked with uh, Stein Osterling, uh, he made a very interesting survey of the different initiatives of social innovation at the European level. I don't know if he has updated it, but it's really a document worth looking at. I can give you the precise reference later on. Many thanks, uh, Frank and Angeliki. Um, so it was such an engaging discussion that time ran out very, very quickly. And uh, uh, I hope that uh, our listeners understood um, what we, especially as researchers, can, can do uh, to make uh, social innovation truly transformative. One of the lessons I'm, I'm, uh, I heard uh, from uh, Notably from Angeliki on the question of you know the role of researchers is is this question of you know being involved in in, in these bottom linked uh, networks uh, and uh, another thing I've heard now from Frank is that uh, aiming for the very top is uh, can end up as a footnote so it might not always be the the the, the best investment of the, of the researchers' time but there is room for it as well uh, yes. and it's yes, important but, as well. Yeah. An official document from the Commission can be a footnote in the course of history, of course, and that is our hope. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> it is actually quite likely to be so. All right, so many thanks again. Uh, I look forward to other discussions with you in the future, and, and for now, uh, goodbye to our listeners.